For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Saturday, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Tonight, I'm here alone, and you, all of you, my viewers, I thank you for being here, those of you who are here tonight. I thought that I would do something a little different tonight. Uh, I've done a few of these in the past. Uh, I'm just going to talk extemporaneously uh, for the next hour about whatever is on my mind, whatever is on your mind. Please leave your comments in the comments section if there's anything that you want to talk about. If that you would like me to talk about, uh, by all means, uh, uh, do those. Uh, I see that Natasha is here. Uh, Danielle is here. And since Danielle is here, I think that it would be a good moment for me to thank Danielle uh, since this is the season of Thanksgiving, uh, and thank Danielle for the incredible work that she's been doing uh, with me and beyond. Uh, Danielle uh, has been incredibly generous uh, with her time, with her spirit, with everything, and uh, Danielle even designed uh, our overlay for this week's show. I mean, it's just beautiful. And when I first saw this, of course, the first thing I think about because of this aura, this bubble that I'm in, uh, is Glinda in The Wizard of Oz. Uh, because The Wizard of Oz resonates so deeply with me, my childhood and beyond. Uh, I'm still a child growing into the next phase of my life. Uh, so when she designed this for me, I was very, very happy that she had designed this. And then she even brought it up to me. And I said, my brain went immediately there uh, when she reached out to me. But Danielle uh, has a very special offer to offer everyone uh, during the holidays. She is she does these incredible readings uh, and she's a psychic medium, she's a spiritual advisor. Uh, well, rather than having me talk about what it is that Danielle does, we have a little promo and here it is. Hello, Richard Skipper Celebrates family. Happy and blessed holidays, everybody. I am so thankful to have gotten to know so many of you this past year. And if you've been wanting to work with me, I wanted to let you know I'm having holiday specials on my website, damseldesigns, D-A-M-C-L-Designs.com with buy one, get one holiday offers, gift certificate specials, payment plans, and more. There really is no shortage of ways to work with me this season or to invest in energy for yourself or your loved ones. I would love to help connect you even beyond the worlds of spirit and spirit animal medicine and help you understand more of your own energy work through patterns deep dive and rise to create the life that you love i will see you in the comments and happy holidays everyone and danielle is the one to do this she's just an amazing human being she's an amazing spirit and i'm thrilled that uh, she's in my life uh this week uh was the uh birthday of lorna luft and it was Lorna who brought Danielle and me together because when I did my interview with uh, Lorna, uh, Danielle won her book, her giveaway, and that opened the door for our relationship. So I believe that somehow the spirit brought us together uh, so that we could continue on the path that we are on side by side, uh, moving forward as we go into 2023. So tonight, uh, auras. I am not an expert on auras by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but uh, it's something and it's a phenomenon that I am, synchronicity, that's the word, uh, 
it is something that I am very, very interested in. I remember in the early 80s when I first moved to New York, a group of us, I I first moved to 205th Street and Hall Avenue in February of 2000, well, in February of 1980. And I lived there for the first five years of my life. And I've talked about this before, but I'll go a little deeper into this interesting, strange uh, world that I fell into the day that I met Millie Brown. I called her the unsinkable Millie Brown. I met her at my first audition, which was on the 9th of August of 1979, when I auditioned for Stardust Memories, the Woody Allen film. It wasn't really an audition. It was more of a walkthrough. I met Woody Allen. He looked at me up and down and said, thank you for being here. And that was it. But Millie and I were standing in line. I was fresh off the plane. I had just flown to New York a few days before. And I was so green. I had a Southern accent. You could still somewhat cut with a knife. I was this eager kid waiting to embark on this adventure called show business. And so when I met Millie, we immediately met there and we went to the Amy's Health Food Store. I remember having pita bread with uh, with uh, bean sprouts, something I had never had in South Carolina, even though I grew up on a farm. Uh, but we went, we had this lunch and afterwards Millie gave me her number and she said, if you need me for any reasons, please call me. And little did I know that that was going to be the beginning of this uh, up and down relationship. And I call it an up and down relationship because Millie was many things. She was anti-mame to me. I was her Patrick. And she truly introduced me to a lot of my first in New York. She introduced me to my first pastrami sandwich. She introduced me. Uh, we went to uh, every Saturday. Uh, uh, thank you, Danielle, for being here. Enjoy your family tonight. And look at this later. You, uh, there's a lot uh, coming up. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, every Sunday afternoon, Millie and I would get together and we would enjoy all that New York had to offer. Uh, I went on my first Staten Island ferry ride with Millie Brown, uh, going to the Statue of Liberty, going to the Empire State Building, going to Rockefeller Center. Every Sunday, that was our, uh, that was our thing to do. And it was very much like we had this Harold and Maude type of, relationship. Uh, it was purely platonic, nothing beyond that. Uh, but she was there as uh, for the ups and the downs with everything that was going on in my life. And there were a lot of downs. Uh, I had a very bizarre roommate situation right off the bat when I arrived in New York. Uh, and she was there to get me through a lot of these situations emotionally. Um, she found the apartment in her building that I ended up moving into uh, in 1980 that would become my home for the next five years of my life. And that all started out idyllic, but she became very possessive of me. Uh, and as I began to branch out uh, and begin to make friends of my own, she became insanely jealous of all of that. And she was constantly fighting me. Uh, you know, you're spending too much time with these friends, you know. And she was very, very, very uh, right wing in terms of her uh, beliefs. She actually felt that 
I would give up show business, right? you hear this, and go into the priesthood. And living where I lived at 205th Street and Hull Avenue, I lived in a predominantly Catholic neighborhood. So uh, thank you, Natasha. Uh, I, there was It was a predominantly Catholic neighborhood, but I would go to mass with Millie every uh, Sunday and sometimes during the week. Um, I, you know, I, I was open to so much, but there were bizarre things that started to happen as well. Uh, one of those bizarre things was that Millie took me to a meeting one night. Uh, we were all sitting around and it was like something out of a cult or something that I was in. And I found out that I was at a John Birch meeting for the John Birch Society. Uh, for those of you who do not know, John Birch is extremely right-wing. Um, as soon as I found out that I was in the midst of all this, I said, you know, Millie, you know, I know that there are a lot of things that we agree on, but I don't think that I belong here. That was one argument that ended up happening. But I tell you all of this because one night uh, we went to this prayer vigil in the Bronx and someone took a photograph of a whole group of us. And I wish I had that photograph to this day because everyone in that picture appeared vividly except for me. And where I was standing in that photograph, it was like beads of light were shooting out of my head. Uh, different colors, like uh, rainbow hues and everything. And that was the first time that someone said to me, oh my God, this is your aura. This is, you know, you've got this uh, kaleidoscopic aura uh, of light that is surrounding you. And I, it, it intrigued me. And I, you know, and then of course I, would read a lot of books and it was not short, it was shortly around that time that Shirley MacLaine was going on her spiritual quest and out on a limb came out. I happened to be doing stock uh, in uh, Front Royal, Virginia. I am under a tree uh, reading the book one day and I'm reading, I'm in Front Royal and I'm reading about Front Royal, Virginia. That was the hometown of Shirley MacLaine and Warren Beatty. You know, Danielle mentioned a few moments ago, synchronicity. It was just this strange synchronistic moment that there I was reading about this and there I am. But these things have happened throughout my entire life. Uh, you may believe in auras, you may not believe in auras. I do. I believe that everybody has a special light. You can be in a, a room, somebody will walk into that room and you will notice as soon as they walk in, uh, you feel a certain energy. You feel a certain vibration. There are certain people that from the moment I meet them, Danielle is one of them. Uh, many of you are uh, fit into that category with me. I feel a gravitational pull to want to spend more time with them. But getting back to Millie. So this relationship, you know, started to go uh, south. Uh, and there were several circumstances that led to us going in that southern direction. Um the local parish, uh, St. Philip Neri, uh, she saw in the pa parish newspaper that they were holding auditions for Hello, Dolly, and which has been a through line in my life. So we both go and audition for this production of Hello, Dolly. Uh, it was truly a community uh, theater. I don't like to use the word amateur. 
Uh, I, you know, to me, the word amateur is not a word that I use, but it was this community theater production. And uh, we went and auditioned. I got cast and Millie didn't. And she was very angry about the fact that she felt that it was rigged. Well, Dolly was cast before we got there. They were doing the production <clears throat> around Maureen Milton, who became a very dear friend of mine. And uh, Millie was upset about that. And as I started acclimating myself with this group, I wanted to spend more and more time with them. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, I, you know, when I was growing up in South Carolina, I didn't have a social life outside of high school and the community theater that I, theater of the Republic that I appeared in. I didn't go out with friends. I never went to a prom. I never did those things. I never had friends over at my house. Uh, there were never any sleepovers, any of that, that most kids experience growing up with. I never had any of that. Uh, so for the first time at eight, 19 years of age, I am out with friends having a great time every Saturday and Sunday night. I did a lot of temp work that got me through the week. That's, that was my survival. But I could not wait for Friday and Saturday nights when we would go to rehearse and I could go out and have a great time with these friends. And it was also around that time and I'm going to do a shameless little plug here because I'm writing a show called Plate Spinners, Jugglers, and Richard Skipper, Tales of a Life in Show Business, that I discovered the piano bar, uh, which was inside uh, Beef State Charlie's in New York. And uh, this is a story that I'm going to tell in this show. Because once I discovered the piano bar, I found that I had found, as they say, my tribe. Uh, I felt perfectly at home. I loved going there every Thursday night. That was my thing to do. I would go into the city and I would get up and I would get up and perform. And this went on for quite some time. And then one night I had some friends visiting from South Carolina and they asked me if I, and after I did my number, uh, Houston Allred, who was playing piano, said, do you have anything else prepared? And one of my friends yelled, why don't you perform as Carol Channing? At which the entire room burst into laughter. And he said, oh, you do Carol Channing? And I said, no, 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 I don't do Carol Channing. And he said, yes. Uh, they said, yes, I used to perform it on the front steps of my high school. That tells you everything you need to know about my high school years. But I used to do lunchtime concerts on the front steps of our high school. And doing those concerts, everyone in school, they would come in groups to watch these performances. So Houston Allred got up and he came around and he said, please, please just humor us, do it for us tonight. So I reluctantly said yes, that I would perform. The, uh, and he asked me if I would do Hello, Dolly. And he said, do you know all the verses? And of course I did. And he went around, he got the wait staff, he got various people to play the various waiters. And we recreated on the spot. Hello, Aaron, it's great to see you. Uh, we recreated on the spot, the Hello Dolly number. We did the number and it brought the house down. I got a standing ovation. Now, mind you, I'm 19 years of age, uh, but it was this moment that changed the entire trajectory of my life. There was this incredible woman there named Leola Harlow and Leola comes over and she says, what is your drag name? 
And I didn't even know what that meant. I had never even heard the word drag. And she said, obviously you've done this before, which I had not done in full regalia. She said, if you ever change your mind and you want, uh, I want to dress you. I want to be the one to put you in your first costume. Please let me be that person. And I said, famous last words, it's never going to happen. Well, what started happening was that every Thursday night when I would come to the piano bar, Houston would come over and ask me if I would close the evening doing Hello, Dolly. And that became like the grand finale every night. And it kept getting bigger and better. And it was a lot of fun. And after several weeks of this going on, I went to an audition one afternoon and I was auditioning for a show called All American Boy. I went in, I auditioned, and as soon as I walked into the room, they said, oh my God, you're Carol Channing. We saw you at the piano bar. And my first thought was that, oh my God, my career is over. I'm never going to go anywhere. This is it. They said, we've got an idea. The second act of the show opens with the lead characters going into a nightclub and a singer comes out and sings the title song, All American Boy. Uh, what if they were to go into a drag bar and the lead character came out a la Carol Channing and performed the title song. And uh, I thought about it and I said, well, I could work on it. So they took me over to the musical director, <coughs> excuse me. We worked on the number. I ended up, they hired me on the spot to do this. So I left, I went to the nearest payphone. Remember, we didn't have those in those days. I went to the nearest payphone. I called Leola Harlow and she said, uh, get over here as quickly as you can and I will dress you. I went over in those days, I was a toothpick. I went over, she went into her closet, sidelight. She used to dress strippers in New York. She costumed them. And believe it or not, they were, that was still going on at that time. So, and I'm talking about the classier stripper, uh, burlesque show type strippers. So she, I went, she went into her closet. She pulled out a silver lame gown with ostrich plumes around the neck and down the front and around the base of the skirt. And I had a costume. Then I called a friend of mine, Michael Bird, may he rest in peace. And he and I went shopping in Chinatown. We found a page boy Carol Channing wig, which he styled and cut to look more like what she was wearing at, the, at that time. He designed my makeup and I rehearsed and I opened in the show. The first performance, I come out, I do the number and I bring the house down. And I go into the wings, I go, what do I do now? The stage manager said, go back out and take another bow. I went out, took another bow, got a standing ovation. It was incredible. I thought, this is it. This is the show that's gonna put me on the map. Everything's gonna change with this. So after the show was over, the director, and the producer come into the dressing room and they said that I was everything that they were hoping for in the show. And they were cutting the number from the show because they did not want the show to be about that number and about me. And if I had opened in the show, that's what the press would have run with. That's what the show would have been about. That was the direction that it was gonna go in. So I did it one night, that was it. And I never thought that I would ever perform as Carol again. So then uh, I had a costume 
for Halloween. So every year on Halloween, I would dress as Carol. I would go down to the village and I would start out at the monster in Sheridan Square. I would go in, Stanley Keeler would be at the piano. I would come in, I would do a number or two as Carol. I would leave there. I would go to Marie's Crisis, leave there, go to the original duplex, leave there, go to the Five Oaks, perform there, leave there, go to 88s. And then if I was really ambitious, I would get in a cab, go to Don't Tell Mama on 46th Street, sometimes up to Broadway Baby, which was an, around 72nd Street, I think it was. <clears throat> and then I would retrace my steps and come back because it would be a different crowd anyway. And I did that every Halloween for several years. And that was it. And I never, ever thought that I would have this career that would go on you know, with me performing as Carol beyond that. So move ahead to 1990. I am uh, working at Marie's Crisis. That's where I met Danny. Uh, and that was going on, believe it or not, uh, 33 years ago uh, next year. Uh, will be 33 years ago. And I went in and uh, there was a man that used to come and sit at the end of the bar every night. His name was John Glines. Some of you may know John. John uh, was very instrumental in the movement of gay theater in New York. He was also one of the original producers of Torch Song Trilogy. As a matter of fact, when Torch Song Trilogy won the Tony Award, John Glines was the first man ever to say on air, national television, I'd like to thank my lover for all the support he's given me on this. And of course, that was in all the papers the next day. But John Glines was writing a show in 1989 uh, called Men of Manhattan. And it was seven vignettes about gay life in Manhattan. And John came up to me one night and he said, I've written a part for you in the show. And I do not want <coughs> excuse me, I'm gonna get a sip of water here of my juice. John said that he did not want me to see the script until I was on stage in front of an audience. I happened to be good with cold readings. So until I was in front of the audience reading the script, I had no idea of anything about my character. Uh, but these two guys have a caterer uh, in one of the vignettes. And when they ask him his name, he says, Carl Channing. And as soon as I said Carl Channing, the audience burst into laughter and the character would segue in and out of the voice of Carol, although I never dressed as uh, Carol in the show, just the character of Carl Channing. So I did this, brought, I mean, the scene ended up doing very well. And that evening did incredibly well, and they got the backing that they needed to go for an off-Broadway run. So it was announced that the show would open the following June. Uh, this was around March and it would uh, open in June. And, but I had to audition for the, the role because you see the director at this point felt that there were seven vignettes and all of the actors would be doubling up on other roles. And he felt that I would be so identifiable as Carl Channing that the audience would not be able to accept me in any other role in the show. So uh, I auditioned 
and I auditioned for the show about seven times. Uh, they had me read with every actor that came in to audition for the show. I'm auditioning and auditioning and auditioning. I wanted this show more than anything on the planet at that moment. And John Glines, God bless him, was rooting for me. He said, I want you in the show. You're going to be perfect for the show. You're right for the show. The director, however, did not want me in the show. And there was this struggle there. Well, lo and behold, I get cast in the show to play not only Carl Channing, but to play this other character, Ian. Now, Ian is this guy who meets another guy on a blind date. And he is totally off the wall crazy. And he's just crazy in terms of his, uh, he is like hyped up on something. And he's going, and at one point in the show, he goes, oh my God, oh my God, there's, there's Lenny, there's Lenny. And the guy that he's on the blind date with says, Lenny who? And he goes, Lenny Bernstein, Lenny Bernstein, that's Lenny Bernstein. And he said, where? And I go, his caricature, that's his caricature on the wall. Well, it got a huge laugh. Well, while we were doing the show, Lenny Bernstein died. So they cut, uh, they came in and they said, we're going to change it. They changed it to Mary, Mary Martin. We changed, they did the scene with Mary Martin. She dies. Then they changed it to Pearl Bailey. She dies. Then they come in and they said, we're going to change it to Liza. And I said, no, we're going to go back to Lady Bernstein. And that's what we did. <clears throat> but the show opened. And when the show opened, um, I ended up getting some rave reviews. Hold on. I'm going to grab something. Just sit tight. Talk amongst yourselves. I, I've got a little show and tell I want to show you. still here. This is me. Look how young I am there. This is me in Men of Manhattan. And uh, they eventually put this character of me. Uh, there I am with the Sardis uh, menu. Uh, they eventually changed it uh, to where I had a mustache because they thought that the mustache would, you know, give me a little bit of a difference between the, the character of Carl. Well, one night we were doing the show it was so hot in the theater that the mustache started to slowly the spirit gum started to come off and slowly the mustache starts to fall off my face so as i am animated this character the mustache is flipping back and forth and the audience is hysterical uh laughing at the whole thing uh, the whole thing terrence riley who was the actor playing opposite me in the scene was mortified and he was biting the inside of his mouth. He was doing everything he could to keep from laughing, but no matter, I just kept going and going and going. And the more animated I got, the more this mustache would flip back and forth. It was like a, you know, a, a fish on a deck. I mean, it was going back and forth. Well, at the very end of the scene, there's this very poignant moment where the character that Terrence is playing um, says, you know, he's, he's had enough. And he goes, um, Ian, I am just so sorry, uh, but I, 
this is not going to work out. And he gets up to leave. And because it was a small theater, he would make his in, uh, exit through the audience. So he turned around to go. And, uh, and I would say, I guess this means we're never going to see each other again. And I would be able to grab the audience at that moment because we've all been in those awkward moments where things don't go according to plan. And so as soon as he turned to go and he said, no, Ian, I don't think it's going to go. And I stopped and I said, excuse me. And he turned around and he looked at me. I pulled the mustache off and I said, here's something to remember me by. And I gave it to him and the audience went, ballistic. I mean, it was just one of those incredible moments. So in the meantime, the show opens, the show ran. Hello, Rose. It's good to see you here. Uh, the show ran for six months, uh, did very, very well. Uh, and in the meantime, I had met Danny and our relationship was beginning and everything. And believe it or not, we met Memorial Day weekend and I moved in in September and we've been together ever since. But about Six, seven months after Men of Manhattan closed, I got a call from our director from Men of Manhattan saying that a new show was opening uh, that they were doing at the Actors Playhouse. And uh, they wanted me and Danny to come in and see the show. And uh, that they thought it would be right up my alley. And that show was whoop de doo I don't know if any of you ever saw the show or anything, but I went to see the show at the Actors Playhouse uh, off of Sheridan Square. And as the show unfolded, all I kept thinking the whole show was I should be in this show. And as a matter of fact, there was a scene in the show uh, that was based on the movie, The Gods Must Be Crazy. If any of you remember the film, uh, a crate of Coca-Cola falls out of the sky and these natives think that it's elixir from the heavens. So they did a spoof of that in whoop you doo in which a box of costumes fall out of the heavens and all of the natives end up doing these native interpretations of all these great stars. Barbara Streisand, Judy Garland, uh, Carol Channing. And my director from, uh, from Men of Manhattan did the Carol Channing part. And as I'm sitting there in the theater, some strange man, to this day, I don't know who it was, tapped me on the shoulder and said, we saw you in Men of Manhattan. Why isn't that you up there? And I remember leaving the theater that night, getting in the car, coming home, riding up the West Side Highway, trying to figure out every scenario as to why I was not in that show. And I questioned it. And, you know, and Danny's you know, thought was, well, you don't live in the city anymore. Perhaps they put the show together uh, out of sight, out of mind. I don't know. I had walked away, this was an ensemble piece, and I had walked away with a lot of the reviews from Men of Manhattan. And as a result of that, they did not want me in whoop to do for fear that the same thing would happen again. And so it was like this door that was just shut on me that I, you know, do I try to squash my light? Do I continue to let my light shine, my aura, whatever you want to call it? Or, you know, how, how does one go about in this business when you are trying to get your name out there um, and you're not a big name um, and yet you walk away with the reviews 
um, you know, it was a difficult, it was a difficult time for me and it was really uh, depressing for me. But it was not long after that, uh, a few years later, I'm going to jump ahead. Uh, in 1994, it was announced that Carol Channing was coming back to Broadway in Hello, Dolly. And this dear friend of mine, Edward Pitt, called me up one night and he said, have you ever thought about doing a whole show about Carol Channing? And uh, I said, no. And he said, I think you should think about it. He said, especially with Hello, Dolly on Broadway, I think you're going to find your audience. They're going to find you and it's going to change your life. And I thought, I don't know if that's a, a path that I want to go down or not. He said, well, just think about it. So I thought about it and I thought about it and I thought about it. And finally, I began to put together a show called Carol Channing's Broadway. That was my first show that I opened at Don't Tell Mama. And the show was uh, a celebration of Broadway. And it gave me the chance to not only sing the signature songs that she was known for, but to also put songs together that she never got a chance to perform if she had played other roles. And as I was prepping to do the show, I found out um, uh, Natasha Lombardi, yes, Tommy Femia. Uh, and I'm glad you bring up Tommy Femia because there was a brief moment that I also appeared as Judy Garland. Tommy Femia, for those of you who do not know, was uh, he performed as Judy Garland. And when I started performing as Judy Garland, there were people who felt that I was encroaching on his territory. And because he was already established in New York, the interesting thing was that we both started at the same time. While he was building up his audience in New York, I went on the road. I went on the road to perfect what I was doing long before I brought it to New York. So by the time I brought the show to New York, the show was, I mean, he was already well-established. So there were those who were constantly knocking me down. There were press, everything. I could not get past those humps to get through to uh, do what I needed to do. So, but I, I just kept forging ahead. So, but the interesting thing was that doing the show as Carol um, changed everything for me. The, the, the doors began to, uh, to open for me. So while I was working on this show, I found out that the New York City Gay Men's Chorus was going to be doing a celebration of Jerry Herman at Carnegie Hall. And I wanted to be in the show. So I put together a little packet. I sent the packet to the artistic director of the chorus of Carnegie Hall and uh, it landed on deaf ears. I never got a call back. I never got a response. Um, I Every few weeks I would send another card uh, saying, did you get my package? Never once did I get a response. Not once. So I had this friend, Leela Forge, and Leela Forge called me up. Um, uh, Natasha Lombardi. Um, Natasha, what was the name of your club in Connecticut? Uh, Tommy performed everywhere. I hope that Tommy is okay. I haven't heard from him in a while. Tommy and I appeared together in, uh, in Canada. We've done a lot of gigs together over the years. I have not seen or heard from him in a while. If anyone out there knows anything about where he is or anything, please let me know. So um, the Warehouse Cafe. Uh, thank you, Natasha. So when I found out, uh, I got a call from my friend Leela Forge. 
asking me what I was going to be doing on the night of the concert at Carnegie Hall celebrating Jerry Herman. And I said, I'm going to be at home watching television. And he said, well, aren't you coming to the concert? And I said, I don't think I could have a good time. Uh, if they had uh, gotten in touch with me, um, it would have been, uh, you know, any response saying, thank you for getting in touch with us. Uh, we want uh, to have you in the show or uh, it's not the right time or anything. That would have been something. But everything landed on deaf ears. So I got nowhere. So when Leela Forge called me up and asked me what I was going to be doing that night, he said, I'm playing the after party at the Regency or the Regents. He said, why don't you appear as Carol Channing? She's going to be there. And I said, well, what if she doesn't like what I'm doing? He's, well, you'll find out, but I think you should do it. And he said, I'll get together with you because mind you, I'm putting my show together for Don't Tell Mama, Carol Channing's Broadway. He said, I'll get together with you. I will learn your show and we will be prepared to perform some of it for Carol after the show. So I said, well, let me think about it. And it was like the angel and the devil on my shoulders. I was thinking of every possible scenario negatively that could impact upon what I was doing to crash this party. And I also thought about every uh, positive thing that could happen to me if, if it worked out. And um, I, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, so I worked, uh, I, I met with Lee, we rehearsed the show. And then after going back and forth, I finally said, you know, this is an opportunity that's not gonna come my way again. I'm gonna either have to seize it or I'm gonna have to give up on it. So I started, I got dressed at my home in Rockland County. I got in full regalia and I showed up at the Regents. And Leela Forge was waiting for me at the door. And when I walked in, it was like something out of a movie. I mean, flash bulbs were going off over people were going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. He said, Carol Channing is here. I'm gonna walk you to her table. So he's taking me through the crowd. And of course my heart is beating a mile a minute because I'm thinking, oh my God, if she hates what I'm doing, this is it. I, I don't want to embarrass her. I don't want to put her in an awkward spot or anything. As I'm walking through the crowd to Carol Channing, she looks up at me and she just looks me up and down. And she said, where did you learn to do this? And I said, Bennington College in Vermont, which is where she went to college. I said, you do know where that is, Carol? It's the lower left-hand corner part of the map, the part of the state that's always purple, which of course is from her act. She began to laugh and she said, how long have you been impersonating me? And I said, well, who's to say you're not impersonating me? That was it. She said, come and sit down next to me. So I sat down next, this is the picture that someone took. Look at this. This is Carol and we were like two old girlfriends having a conversation. And she's asking me all these questions about her life. Well, she was asking qu qu me questions, but everything that I answered, I would answer based on her history and her knowledge. She said, you are scaring the hell out of me. She said, how do you know all this? And then she says, I know something you're not gonna know. 
uh, Bobby Schmaltz. And I said, Carol, it's the it's the strangest thing. He nominated me for the secretary of the student body in the fourth grade. And she said, oh, that's it. You know, that is, you know, and but the fact that I knew these facts. So then, and you can imagine the place, everybody, Jerry Herman is standing in, across from us. Everybody is around watching this conversation between Carol and myself. And at the end of the conversation, you know, I said, Carol, all these people are here to see you. I don't want to take away from that. But before you, uh, uh, before I go, I would like to do a number for you. She said, you would like to do a number for me? And I said, well, actually, I'd like to do my whole show for you, but I'm sure you don't have the time. She said, we'll make the time. And so she stood up and she said to everybody in the room, I never thought I'd say these words, but in 10 minutes, we're going upstairs to see Carol Channing. I went upstairs to get ready. She, it was like the Pied Piper. She led the entire audience upstairs to see my show. She's, I've got a great photograph, which I'll show you at another time, of her watching me in a mirror. And she is directly sitting in front of me. At one point when I'm doing Little Girl from Little Rock, she gets up on stage to teach me how to do the moves. I mean, she was so there for me. And then she said to the audience afterwards, she said, there have been many people over the years who have tried to impersonate her. But most of the time when people impersonated her, they were nasty, mean, and vicious. She said, this is not an impersonation. This is a Valentine. This is the first time that I've been shown with love, respect, and polish. I use that quote for years. And I said, Carol, I'm about to open a new show at, um, at Don't Tell Mama on 46th Street. I do not want to open the show without your permission. And she said, take the gauntlet and run with it. And that gave me the confidence to open the show. So I opened at Don't Tell Mama. And as a result of opening that show, like something out of a movie, one night in the audience, this woman comes up to me after the show and she said, hello, my name is Patty Rockwell. I'm going to be producing a show at, are you ready? Trump's Taj Mahal in Atlantic City. And I would love for you to be a headliner. A headliner in Atlantic City. I remember years before going to Atlantic City to see an evening at Lacage at Bally's and sitting there going, this is what I want. So now I'm coming in as a headliner. And I, I thought, oh my God, I'm going to lose this. You know, it, but I opened in Atlantic City with Pudgy and Steven Brinberg as Barbara Streisand. We opened uh, and that show was incredible. Mark Rosen, who I interviewed a few weeks ago, uh, he uh, is a packager and a designer and he designed the perfume for Cindy Adams' Gossip, which lasted about a minute on the market. But he designed the packaging and he called me up one day and he said, we're having a launch party uh, at a salon uh, uh, on Madison Avenue and we would like you to appear as Carol. And uh, it happened to be one of my dark nights from Atlantic City. So I said, yes, I'll be there. So I went. The Donald was there when he was married to Ivana. Anthony Quinn and his wife, uh, Regis and Joey Philbin were there. Uh, I mean, it, it's like 
I, I was constantly bumping into celebrities. So the when you stepped into the salon, you stepped out of an elevator right into the salon. So I'm standing there when Carol and her then husband, Charles, arrived. And Arlene Dahl grabbed me and she pulled me over and she said, Carol, look who's here. And Carol looked at me and she said, I have a bone to pick with you. And my heart goes up in my throat. I think this is it. It's all over. That's it. Because that's where my brain went. And she said, all my friends think I'm performing in a small club on West 46th Street. What do I tell them? I said, you tell them you're performing in a small club on West 46th Street. She said, you know, I have. <laughs> and that was the beginning. And so over the years, you know, as time would go on, uh, you know, our paths would cross. I, I always kept her up to date with everything that was going on. So unfortunately, when Hello Dolly closed, um, uh, it closed prematurely, that production in 1997, uh, when Carol was uh, doing the show, uh, because uh, of a blizzard hit, that hit New York. And so they decided for the remaining uh, uh, remainder of the time that they everyone was contracted to do the show, they would take the show on the road. So they went on the road, and while they were on the road, uh, Charles had the first of several uh, strokes. And when this happened, um, it truly changed everything in Carol's life. And it was after that time, and I'm not going to go into the details here, but that Carol um, filed for divorce uh, from Charles uh, and... Uh, and she became the fodder of a lot of jokes, a lot of uh, innuendo, a, a lot of things were being said about her that was that was hurtful. And I, I didn't know whether I should continue to do what I was doing or if I should stop doing what I was doing. And uh, so she went into exile, as she called it. Uh, Charles died. She went to Palm Springs uh, to live in uh, a home that her cousin Dickie owned. Um, and while she was there, she began to pin uh, her memoirs. And shortly after that, she got booked to perform as part of the Lucy Desi days in Jamestown, New York. And we went up to see the show. And this was the first time that Carol was making any public appearance anywhere after this end of her marriage. I wrote a letter and I was able to hand it to her after her performance. I said, read this on the plane on your way back to New York. Uh, don't open it now, just read it on the plane. And in that letter, I stated to her that I would never ever make fun of her. I would never do anything to put her in a negative uh, 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 connotation uh, in any of my work and that her private life would forever remain sacred to me. And that was it. Um, at that time, I was contacted by every show on television. Every talk show wanted to have me come on and talk about the work that I did and about this end of Carol's marriage. I never accepted any of them. Perhaps if I had, my career would have gone in a different direction. I don't know. But I made the choices that I made uh, that I would always respect her. As a matter of fact, one review actually referred to my show as a lesson 
in hagiography, which is the study of sainthood. I don't know if that was a positive or a negative, or if somebody was painting uh, a negative picture of me. I don't know, but I'll take it. I always did that, uh, put her on a pedestal. So after, uh, you know, uh, so then a couple of years later, um, uh, was this before or after the one woman show? I was uh, at the audience with you at a college in Connecticut. Uh, thank you, Natasha. This was all before that uh, one woman show that she started doing. So she meets this guy, Roger, that I think that she's going to marry. Uh, I got a call uh, from the head of the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus asking if I would like to appear. They were doing a whole week built around Carol Channing. She was starting to come out of the shadows and start to perform again. If I would appear with a chorus in San Francisco, I would end up, by the way, I'm gonna jump ahead because we will run out of time. I ended up years later headlining on stage with the New York City Gaiman's Chorus at Carnegie Hall. And the other headliner was Sam Harris. So things do come around full circle. Maybe I wasn't ready the first time, but I was years later when I came around to do it. I did a Christmas concert uh, at Carnegie Hall. But the San Francisco Gaiman's Chorus called me and they wanted me to come in and they wanted me to rehearse. Uh, they wanted me to uh, appear with Carol. And we went through a whole list of songs that Carol and I could possibly do together. Bosom Buddies, uh, Together Wherever We Go, all the friendship songs, you know, anything that would be a great duet for the two of us. And I was so excited. And then they called me and they said, Carol doesn't feel comfortable because she had not been performing in a while that we would do a number together because she was afraid that I would make her look bad, which made me feel bad that she would even think bad. But this is what I was told by the chorus. So uh, they said, you will appear in the first act and she will appear in the second act. So when I arrived for my rehearsal, the chorus was on stage rehearsing Hello, Dolly. So I was sitting in the theater and Kathy, who was the head of the chorus at the time, she turned around and she said, Richard, why don't you come up and sing Carol's part? So I came up and this was the night before the show. So I came up, I did Carol's part and the chorus gave me a nice ovation and everything. And I said, now the bad news, Carol doesn't sing in this key anymore. And she's, what do you mean? It's on the album. And I said, go and listen to the last revival. They recorded the 97 recording you will notice that her voice has dropped like an octave. And unfortunately, they didn't change that the next night. And But Carol was game and she got through it and everything. But what they did is they I came out and I performed in the first act. And in the second act, I came on uh, and uh, as I, let me see if I can, I think, do I have the book here? I thought that I had my, uh, photo album here that I could show you a couple of photos from that show, but I, it's not handy, I don't think. No, it's not here. Um, another show, uh, show and tell. These, all these pictures, by the way, and these stories will be included in my one man show that I'm writing about my life with Carol and the lessons that I learned from her. So at this, in the second act, um, 
uh, I come out to sing Hello Dolly with the chorus. And when I walk out on stage, one of the chorus guys goes, stop, stop the music, stop the music. Um, if you are Carol Channing, who is that? And she walked out on stage. And of course the audience went ballistic. Well, at the end of the show, um, all of the artists were all on stage with their arms extended for Carol to come out and take her bow. And when Carol walked out on stage, she walked within eyeshot of everybody in the audience so that everyone could see her. And then she walked up and she took me by my hand and she brought me down to center stage and, and I took the star bow with Carol Channing. And it was just this most incredible experience that this woman would do something so generous uh, for me. And a couple of years later, uh, she is uh, appearing as part of a series at the Village Gate called, uh, you know, uh, I, I, you know, an evening with, and uh, she opened the series, and I went to see her, and after the show, at this point, she has married Harry Collegian, so I go up to Harry, I introduce myself to him, and I said, Harry, I just want to introduce you. My name is Richard Skipper. And he went, oh my God, I've heard so much about you. I've been wanting to meet you. He said, any friend of Carol's is a friend of mine. He said, I said to Carol after I saw the pictures of you, it's a good thing I didn't meet him first. And I thought, well, what a nice thing to say. This was in October. And he said, I am, uh, he gave me his card and he said, use it, call us anytime. Well, I didn't feel that I was just going to pick up the phone and I was going to call Carol and Harry and, you know, just to talk with them. But on Christmas morning, the card is sitting on my desk. I thought, I am going to call Carol Channing. So when I called them, Harry answered the phone and then Carol got on and she said, I've been sitting by the phone for three months waiting for your phone call, <laughs> which was incredible. And from that moment on, every year on Christmas Day, I would get a phone call from Carol Channing. And she would, I would answer the phone and it was always the same thing. Hello, Richard, this is Carol. Carol Channing, yes, I'm your Christmas Carol. And that went on for years and years and years. I'm going to recommend all of you, if you haven't seen it, go and see the film Carol Channing, Larger Than Life you will see this incredible love story of her and Harry. And at the end of the film, she gets her star on the Palm Springs Walk of Fame. And there I am, right there with her. Um, when I heard that she was going to be getting the star on the Palm Springs Walk of Fame, I reached out to them and I said, I'd like to come out to California. Uh, and uh, where do you recommend that I stay? And Harry said, you're going to stay with us. Where else would you stay? And I stayed in their home. And that, I mean, this little kid from South Carolina dreaming of, I mean, Carol Channing was this iconic figure that I would see from a distance on the love boat and the Muppets and every appearance that I could catch her on television, that I would be staying in her home. And it was just in this incredible moment. And so the day that we went to uh, get, uh, when she went to get her star on the Palm Springs Walk of Fame, 
uh, we were standing, uh, I got there and behind her uh, was a seat and it said family. There was no seat with my name on it. And I said to Harry, where am I? He said, Richard, that's your seat. And the fact that they would think of me as family was the greatest gift. I mean, forget all of the appearances that I did. Forget all of the people that I met. Getting to spend time with her and getting to know her uh, and being embraced and brought into that world was just literally the greatest gift that anybody could have ever given me. I never would have thought about it. But, you know, unfortunately, um, after Harry died, everything changed. And uh, I was cut off uh, from, for whatever reasons, I don't know why. Um, I did not speak with her for the last few years of her life, um, which was the last time that I saw Carol uh, was at a party at Tommy Toon's home. And uh, Stephen Surikoff took some great photographs of Carol and me from that night. And those were the last photographs that I have of her. But I know that, you know, this hour, I thank all of you for being here as I am watching the clock that we're coming uh, to the close of this evening. Um, it's International Aura Awareness Day. And Carol had a bright aura. And I would like to think that somewhere along the lines that our auras were meant to interconnect with each other. Um, I never would have thought that watching her on those television shows as a kid, that I would go down this career path. And it was all from that moment at the piano bar that night. Uh, these stories will be truncated a little bit because there are so many other stories of people that I've uh, had the great pleasure of working with and getting to know over the years. Stories about Elaine Stritch and uh, you know, Mitzi Gaynor. Uh, the night that uh, Carol Channing was in the audience at my show, uh, Neil Sedaka being in that show. Uh, I hope if you're available that you will all join me uh, in Washington, D.C. on March 18th at Crazy Ann Helens uh, as I bring Plate Spinners, Jugglers, and Richard Skipper, Tales of a Life in Show Business. Thank you for indulging me tonight. Thank you for just being there and lifting me up. And again, on this Thanksgiving weekend, I'm thankful for all of you. And the word of the day is love. I love you all. Have a wonderful evening. And I will see you tomorrow night at 7 o'clock with Kasira McKee for the Let That Go show. Thank you and make it a better tomorrow. Goodbye. Goodbye.